connecting, growing, and gaining opportunities together. Welcome to the Travel Hub Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Travel Hub Podcast. I'm Michelle Bouchard, your host for today's show. In this episode, I'm talking with Brian Brazier, the Director of Broadcast Productions for the Chickasaw Nation in Ada, Oklahoma. Ada is located in the rolling hills of southeastern Oklahoma. It's about 90 miles southeast of Oklahoma City and about 160 miles north of Dallas, Texas. The Chickasaw Nation operates more than 100 diversified businesses in a variety of service and industries. This includes manufacturing, energy, healthcare, media, technology, hospitality, retail, and tourism. The nation also owns 18 casino facilities. The estimated annual travel economic impact in the region from all sources is more than $3.1 billion. In addition to all those businesses, the tribe owns five commercial radio stations, KADA-AM, which also translates to 102.3 FM, KADA 99.3 FM, KTLS 106.5 FM, KXFC 105.5 FM, and KYKC 100.1 FM. They also own three non-commercial radio stations located in separate towns across South Central Oklahoma. The Chickasaw Nation has been building their community radio network for the past 12 years. During this time, they have become a voice for their community to turn to for community news, weather updates, and some pretty cool jams. Being able to communicate with citizens of your tribes and members of your communities is very important. Not only is it key to making sure tribal citizens have the most updated information on programs and services, it also brings awareness to the many positive things that the tribe is bringing to the community at large. Having a bit of background in communications within tribes, I was always looking for new ways to intertwine the tribe into our community because really we're all one. If I could find a new and unique way to do that, I totally jumped on it. And this is exactly what Chickasaw Nation did when they purchased their first non-commercial radio station in 2008. One of the most unique aspects of the multiple stations the tribe owns, however, is their use of multiple networking technologies that they are using to connect their stations to transmitters instead of using a traditional radio frequency link. We'll dig into that shortly, but for now, I'd like to welcome Brian Brasher to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Brian. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you calling us. Um, So before we get started, why don't we tell our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? How did you end up as a director of tribally owned radio stations in Ada, Oklahoma. What's your background? Diverse. It started out in broadcasting, actually, at radio station in Paris, Texas, when I was in high school. And then I went on to Paris Junior College and the University of Texas and got a broadcast journalism degree and was a TV weatherman and reporter and then a weatherman, uh, a weather anchor, I should say, in two different markets. It ended up in Waco, Texas. And then in the uh, mid-90s, I came to work for the Chickasaw Nation and the first thing that Governor Anatubby, we that's the leader of our organization, he's a governor, Governor Anatubby, uh, brought me in to start a television production department. So that was happening, and that quickly transitioned into video conferencing as well, because we had several video conferencing units. Well, we quickly found out that that was less of a video medium than it was an IT platform with a camera attached. Mm -hmm. And I had not been trained in any of that. So a few years of extensive data communications training and learning networking to really operate that system led to becoming the director of telecommunications for the tribe. In that project, that's where all of this comes together and what we're doing and why we're on this call. I had to learn how to use, I think they even use them anymore, CSU, DSUs, channel service units and data service units. So when T1s were the fastest link that we could have of any kind between two locations, 
There were T3s or uh, I can't remember what that other thing was called, but they were so expensive back in the mid 90s that no one could even afford it. But T1 was the best we could do. And a lot of our campuses, our office areas had been used to dial up at 56K max. So when we were able to bring in a 1.54 megabit link, oh, they just, it was, it was wonderful. But what I would do on some of these campuses that were linked together is send them through that CSUDSU and split it to where each building's getting a fraction of a T1. So fast forward, get back into television production. We grew that telecommunications department and it really took off and got huge. And it is huge now to where I had like three of us. Now there's probably 50 in that department. Holy cow. And where the overall computer services department, there were probably, oh, 25 of us now. There's maybe 120 or so. And that's gone with the growth of the Chickasaw Nation and the change in technology. So then we got in back into radio, and that started in 2007. And that's important because since the last time I had been in radio and television, it was not a digital platform. It was purely analog. Now everything's digital. So starting the radio stations and all had to be on a digital platform. And had I not had that previous experience, I wouldn't have had any idea how to do it. Isn't that great how everything kind of comes together? Oh, yeah. It wasn't planned. So let's start at the very beginning. What was the reason behind your nation purchasing a radio station? Business diversification was the original plan in the mid-90s. An opportunity came for uh, really the most popular station around. It was a legacy station, had been in the area for more than 60 years, mostly owned by one or two families throughout the history. And they were ready to sell, and Chickasaw Nation knew that was part of their portfolio to get into other things, other types of businesses. And you're also providing a service through public safety and and just general information. So they purchased that one. And then over the next few years, other stations became available or were offered to the Chickasaw Nation. So they added and ultimately have uh, the five commercial stations. And that was all the way up until the early 2000s. And then in 2007, a non-commercial station owner, a group that has several, they wanted to sell their frequency so that they could get that money and use it to build another one where they really wanted it. And they came to the Chickasaw Nation first because they wanted to preserve that community feel. They didn't want it to be owned from someone out of the area. They wanted it to be local. So that's when I was tapped to build it, oversee it, and get it up on the air. And we got it on the air in 2009. So can you tell us the difference between a commercial station and a non-commercial station? Because you have both. Correct. So what is the difference? The federal government does that for us. If it's 91.9 FM or below, down to 87.7, that is called the reserve band of the FM spectrum. In that reserve band, it is reserved for non-commercial use. That's where you hear a lot of NPR stations public radio stations, religious broadcasting, colleges, universities are are usually in that band. So you can have underwriters, you can have people sponsor programs, but you're not allowed to do for-profit call to action like a typical commercial station. So no advertising? No advertising, correct. And the reason that we got into that and said, sure, we'll do this, is 100% for the community service so that we can be providing something that was not really being provided. Uh, since we don't have to worry about you know, making sure we have all the advertising schedule covered, we can talk a little longer about your civic club's activity, or we can stay on for 30 minutes straight when tornadoes and severe weather are threatening an area. So then that's what we do. So it, it gives you a little more flexibility, especially when you're a more community-orientated station. 
Right. And, you know, the term community radio sometimes kind of misunderstood. That is not a legal term. Community radio is more of an industry term, which means you are addressing the unique characteristics of your community. An example would be, I know people at community radio stations like in the Pacific Northwest, they are not talking as much about severe weather as we are. They're talking about the salmon runs and things related to the forest up there. But that's very specific to their community. And the wine, the viticulture is a big thing on those stations up there. We're here, you know, we don't talk about it at all. <laughs> right, exactly. Do you have specific programming for each of the stations? No, we simulcast the signal to all three However, we do carefully make sure that each one of those, since there are different communities, uh, that we address issues that are of interest to those people in those communities. A lot of what we talk about is general. So we're all in southern Oklahoma, so the distance from one end to the other is not even 80 miles. So generally, everything we talk about will interest everyone. But especially, I go back to weather, when it comes to that or a community event, then we'll get very specific for that community. Sure. Do you have any idea on what your listenership is? Do they offer that kind of statistics for a non-commercial station? Not only do they not do that for non-commercial stations, it's not really done in rural America. There's just not enough. <laughs> I mean, the people that do those types of uh, cataloging and reporting, that's not really done. Well, all we can really do is know the potential listenership based on the entire citizenship of the area, which is over 120,000. And the other way is just purely feedback. So we just go with what people tell us, either uh, comments on our website, Facebook, or when they just see us out in the community. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure also you'd see just an increase in awareness of the program. So if you, you know, you have a program or, you know, a, an event happening, you're going to see that increase in people attending. Right. Exactly. And later you'll have people <laughs> they'll actually try to buy advertising because they heard something on us and we'll say, well, if it's a non-commercial activity, no, we'll just talk about it for you at no cost. And that really shocks a lot of the people like, well, we'd like to buy some time to talk about our civic clubs, upcoming, whatever. No, just come on, let's talk about it. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Now, I noticed on your station website that you can actually listen on demand to different programs. That's such a cool idea. Correct. And we try to put the ones up there that are not time sensitive. You know, we do a lot of things that are community events that have a deadline. So the ones that are not, that are just general information that could help you around your life. Yeah, we'll archive those. That is actually getting ready to increase a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. And I say that because now we have a new plan of how we can, again, back to that targeted interest. We know we have a lot of people that listen online from out of state, especially a lot of Chickasaw citizens. So some of the programs that we're going to be designing just for them, but it's of interest to them. It's also of an interest to the people here. Yeah, it's very cool. Now, I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but given your location, weather is just a huge deal. You know, being weather ready is very important. So do you have a weather ready ambassador at your station? Do you have tornado spotters? What do you do when there is like a severe weather threat happening in your area? Well, you're you're talking to him. uh, Actually, we are a weather ready nation ambassador. Okay. And in fact, in uh, 2019, we were named weather ready nation ambassador of excellence by the National Weather Service. That's awesome. So we were very proud of that. So I was trained spotter for many, many years and helped coordinate with National Weather Service some of the classes. And I'm also on the uh, Norman National Weather Service offices, what they call the warning coordination team. Mm -hmm. So it's usually emergency managers, the meteorologist, and a few of us in there. Mm -hmm. And I am a student of meteorology. I'm still in process. So yeah, we get together, we plan out ways that we can help get those forecasts out, the instant warnings and all. And a lot of that has happened while we're live on the air. We will spot something that the radar can't see because it's too low. And based on those observations and the fact that we're credentialed, 
they will go ahead and issue a warning. So that's happened a few times. That's so important. I know I told you before that we just moved back to Michigan from Missouri and we lived right on the border of Missouri and Oklahoma. And I, I never really even understood the term weather ready and how important it would be in my life until I moved there. So it's such an important thing in that area of the country. This week is a great example. We have just kind of mentioned a few times on the air this week. And I know if people aren't thinking there, it was beautiful here. It was sunny. It was up to almost 80 degrees. And we were already telling on the radio in the next week, we could have five inches of rain. So now's a good time for you to move farm equipment, vehicles, do things that you wouldn't want a muddy pasture, yard, whatever, to cause a problem. This Now's the time. And sure enough, the rain started this morning, and it's not expected to completely stop until probably next Friday. Oh, goodness. That's horrible. And our ground is already saturated. So we'll have flash flooding. We'll have a few problems over the next few mm -hmm. days. In addition to the National Weather Service partnership that we're very grateful to have, we also are in very close partnership with other public safety groups, the fire departments, emergency managers from all the various counties in our area. And when I say partnership, as in they will call us to make sure we get a message out or if we see smoke somewhere. Before we tell people don't drive that way or avoid this area, we'll contact them and find out, oh, that's a controlled burn in the national park that's near us. So we try to work very closely with all of the emergency service personnel and uh, emergency managers, police, fire, all those folks, even down to the point of rerouting people when highways are closed because of an accident. So we're very grateful for that partnership as well. Thankfully, everyone knows who they can turn to to get the latest. Hopefully. Let's start talking about some of the technical side of running a radio station. And I know that you talked about some of this before, but one of the most unique aspects about your stations is the use of multiple networking technologies that connect the stations to their transmitters instead of using the traditional radio frequency link. Can you tell us why these stations all use different technologies? I think I would answer it backwards. The, the, the last question you asked, why is to test different technologies? I don't like to put all the eggs in one basket, much like our diversification strategy for the nation. So part of that's been necessity. Part of that has been by design. Okay. The first part, we started using T1 telephone lines because that was really the only way to cross terrain and distance. That was the only way. There was no other way to get the signal from the station out to the transmitter by nature of where we are at our station, our actual radio station, the first one. We're on an historic building. It's not somewhere you can go stick an antenna and put a pole on it and all. It's not like that. So a ground-based system like a T1 telephone line was the best option. Now, its problem is anyone digging between here and there, nine miles out in the country, can cut that line. And it's happened about three times. Oh, my goodness. The second thing is a wildfire one time got the pedestal out in the country there where all the wires come up. And you see them all around the country. You know that's where the junction is. That melted wires took us off the air. Mm -hmm. We've sometimes, believe it or not, spiders will build webs inside. They get wet. It'll cross and short out. Ew. That's too much dependency on one system. So that's why having experience, and I left this out earlier, back in my data days for the tribe, I learned about the wireless communications possibilities. Again, we figured out pretty quickly to go from 1.54 megabit up to almost 11 with a wireless link, and you only have one cost. You buy it one time, you're done. There's no monthly fee, and you're good to go. And I learned about the Select Tech Corporation in San Diego, went out and stayed with them for three or four days and got trained by their engineers and came back and installed almost a dozen links around the Chickasaw Nation. That really launched us in the late 90s, getting ready for Y2K. And then right after that, 
uh, to get away from that dependency on copper. And that really helps. So why can't we apply that technology to radio? I mentioned that radio was analog. And then when I got back into it, it's digital. Well, as we all know, computers, not to personify them, but they don't care what is going over that digital line. If it's photographs, video, audio, data, it doesn't know. It's zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. So when I learned I could get a device that would digitize our audio, then we could just stick it over that digital link and then decode it on the other end and it's back to clean audio. Mm -hmm. So that just works very well. So that's how we still have the T1s going to two different stations, the one here and one about 60 miles away. We now have the backup link of the wireless that will go, it'll switch. In 2020, we're going to switch that where the wireless link is the primary and the copper is the backup. Okay. And our last station that we just put on the air in uh, October, November, by where it is, there's no, you know, you have what you call your last mile provider. That's the, the local provider of telco services. They are very, very sparse in that part of rural Oklahoma. So working months and months and months, it was, it was becoming very problematic to get them to run us a link. And we had no other option. They're it. Mm -hmm. And it looked like we're a little too far away for any wireless options. So we went with just a cellular router contacted the uh, cellular provider and was able to secure a static IP address. We can't have it changing because every time it changes on DHCP, it'll knock us off the air. So we got the static IP and it has been fantastic now for all these months. And it's working great because the actual size of the data that we're sending over an audio, a digitized audio link is not even 192K. I mean, it's not very much. So it's it sounds great. It works. We have done more studies. And again, I've been working with Select Tech uh, because I mean, there's a lot, there are other companies. I just have a history with them. The Chickasaw Nation actually is doing a lot of wireless links and they actually have a different company. I can't remember which one they're using, but they're all comparable and they're all very good now and very reliable. But we have now figured out a way, working with Select Tech's engineers, how we will be able to send our signal that very long haul from ADA all the way down to our newer place even though the elevation change between the two is several hundred feet. So that will happen in 2020 as well. And that again, that's going to become the primary link. I'll leave the mm -hmm. cellular router there as a backup that the device uh, that it's going through, when it detects that one of the signals is lost, it'll just switch over to the other. And then we're going to put that wireless router system at all of the transmitters as the backup because that's really working well. What are we talking here? Can you give us like a visual as far as like how, how far apart is everything and where does the terrain play? Well, I know people are listening that maybe a lot, a lot of folks in Tribal Hub are, are reservation-based, and some folks are used to having buttes or mesas, so we don't exactly have that. We're not flat at all, so it's not what some people's impression of Oklahoma is just flat and dusty. Very, very rolling hills, trees. Right here where our station is in downtown Ada, we're at the highest hill in town, but you're in town, so you can't really tell. You immediately go south and you drop into a little valley. Then you go up over a higher hill, another valley, and then a very high hill where our ground elevation here is almost a thousand feet, maybe a thousand four. And at the transmitter, it's 1200 feet at the ground. And so then you go up 400 feet on our tower where it's 1600 feet above sea level, which is the highest place anywhere around here. You keep going south another 60 miles. And that's where our other transmitter is. In between that is the Arbuckle Mountain Range which if anyone's ever driven on an Interstate 35 between Oklahoma City and Dallas, in southern Oklahoma, they may have noticed that they went through what looked like the highway was cut through the mountains, and it was. And where the layers of earth are supposed to be horizontal there, they're at an angle or vertical because of tectonics and it popped up, but you can see it. And geologists come from around the world to look at that. Well, that's pretty and it's cool, but it makes it impossible to shoot a signal over. So we have to find another way around it. So that's where that was, again, a T1. So it's quite a ways away. The other link 
even though it's only 25 miles from here at a different county, huge elevation shift. And it's right in front of us. So you leave town, you go way down in the valley, and then you go up quickly, several hundred feet in less than a mile. It's very, very abrupt. So that one, again, we thought at first, we're just not going to make it. But we were able to find out that our tower south of town, if you go up high enough on it, and you go high enough on a tower there in our new place, we can actually get a point-to-point -point link with a very high gigahertz signal using a point-to-point -point link. And that's something we're exploring now. The only problem with those sometimes if you're having to lease space on a tower. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because when you think about Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, that area, you typically don't think about having to cut through a side of a mountain right. to get a highway through there. It brings another level of planning when it comes to this kind of thing. It's very interesting. It is. And for people being interested, I spoke recently a few months ago at uh, National Congress of American Indians. FCC had me come in to speak to that group about this very thing. And one of the things I wanted to point out to people, if they're considering any of this, there's no doubt that if you can do wireless point-to-point -point unlicensed link, that will be your least cost up front and over time. But that's if you own your tower or your building that you're putting it on. Once you add in the least cost of tower space, you just have to look at it. It just depends. We own one of the towers, so we won't have it any lease on that side, but we will on the other side. And lease spaces can be a few hundred dollars. They can be a thousand dollars. It depends on where you are. I'm sorry, per month. How often do you have to look at your backups and think about upgrading or changing? You know, you must always be looking at what you could do. What's the newest thing? We do. Uh, typical computer type equipment, you know, after about three years, you may or may not need to replace it. Five years, more than likely. But we also are really diligent on watching the software upgrades. In fact, today, this morning, early, we had one of our transmitters. We could tell it was on and transmitting, but it wasn't sending any audio. Mm -hmm. Well, we realized that one of the processors had done some type of reboot and it didn't finish the reboot. So I had to go manually do that out in the country. So the first thing we did was note the software version. And today, if there's an upgrade, we'll be doing that. Right. So the, everything's checked weekly. But also, here's another part of the bandwidth that we're using for all these links is for monitor and control. We monitor all the different statistics at every transmitter, and I can do that from my cell phone anywhere. And I can see all the transmitters. I can turn them on, turn them off, raise the power, lower the power through a GUI graphical user interface that's just there. Oh, and by the way, I'll mention, Michelle, in the old days, that was all done by telephone. You'd have to dial in and then push codes on your phone to hear it tell you back what the things were. Or if you want to control something, you have to enter numbers in to make it do things. Now, being able to just look at a graph on your screen, on your phone, that takes more bandwidth. So you can't do that over a POTS line, a plain old telephone service line. You need something a little better. So, yeah. So we do that instantaneously on the monitoring. And then, yeah, it's periodic, I would say. It depends. Yeah, it's about a three-year cycle that we usually start looking at. We have to see a little bit of a trend. We don't just do it because it's time. If it's still healthy, we're going to let it go. Right. Now, you are a member of the Native Public Media, right? Correct. So how has your involvement with that organization helped you grow the stations? I'll never be able to say how much that's helped. When we got this going, working in broadcasting didn't necessarily prepare me to build a radio station. Right. It's, it's so different. It, you'd think it'd be the same, but it's not. And no. Uh, being in the data world for that time definitely helped. And understanding producing, because I know how to produce content and all, but there's a lot in between. So I contacted everyone I'd ever worked with in radio, which were about five people. And much to my shock, none of them had ever started a station. Wow. Some of them had been in radio 30, 40 years, never had built one from scratch. So still contacting people, someone said, well, have you heard of Native Public Media? And I have no idea what that is. They told me, Loris Taylor's the president, call her. 
I did. She's in Arizona. She said, oh, I can connect you with. And so she starts connecting me with people at the Warm Springs tribe and just different tribes around the country who have started them. And they held my hand all the way down to, well, have you considered this thing and this thing? I said, I don't know what I don't know. So I attended the first meeting with them and it was a most family oriented. Everybody wants to help everybody. It was just amazing. About four years in, five years in, then I became the one that I'd get the calls. Hey, we're putting on a station at the Nez Perce Reservation. Can you help us? Sure. <laughs> Circling back around again. Right. And part of that, the FCC created something called the Tribal Radio Priority about 10 or 11 years ago to help stations, especially reservation-based stations, find a way to get on. Really, how could they compete when there's an auction for a frequency with big corporations? So they kind of fixed a way for tribes to have an opportunity. So far, seven tribes have taken advantage of that. The first one being the Wallapais and and the last one being Chickasaw Nation. That's the one we got on the air last year in an area that no one would ever have wanted to in the first place because there's not enough commercial market there to pay back their cost. But for us, it's great because now we are serving citizens that have never really been served and have information geared strictly for their area. And that's also made possible because of data communications and the links. If a tribal entity is even remotely considering a radio station or television, their first call I think should be to native public media. The staff there will connect them with people in the group that can help them. Some of us, not response teams necessarily, but different ones have different expertise from funding to equipment to programming. It depends. And, and it's at an absolutely no cost to you. There's not even a cost to be a member of native public media on the association. So I was very grateful when they elected me to their board of directors in December and now we have some great things planned for even more outreach and where we can try to help any tribe, all tribes with their communication and their and their broadband needs. We're not just about radio and TV. We have a huge focus on broadband and they're very, very involved in this new Spectrum auction. So they're helping people with that very proactively. That's great. We will definitely put a link to their website on our show notes. Good deal. If they're interested in that or have more, would like more information, they can go to the show notes and we'll have the information there. Sounds good. So what does the future hold for Chickasaw public radio sector? Any new uh, acquisitions in the works or? We are trying to work with one group that we're going to see what we can do with them. They're wanting to help in an area. And so that might expand. But other than that, the main focus now is getting into each of the communities. Ardmore, Johnston County, Dixon area, which is south of the Arbuckle Mountains, about 20 miles north of Texas. The Tishomingo, which is the historic capital city of the Chickasaw Nation. That area, they've never really had anybody really talk about them or, or get their activities and their community events on the radio. And then here in Ada is where the original station is. We're upping our outreach efforts to where we're helping them get on the radio, working with city managers, emergency managers, chambers of commerce. And if they've never had any experience, you don't just throw them on the microphone. They're not ready for them. They don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're working carefully to develop programming where they're comfortable and it's periodic every month and then every week. So yeah, it's mostly outreach. We're expanding our outreach or I should say inreach into each of our communities. That's really cool to do that and to get them more comfortable so they know like, hey, we have this new thing coming up. We've got to get back on the show. And so it, it kind of goes both ways and to get them more comfortable with that kind of media. It's very cool. That's the main thing for Chickasaw Community Radio Network. And then individually is a more proactive effort through Native Public Media to help other stations. So, in fact, I've been given the go-ahead by my leadership to say, yeah, anybody that needs the help, you're welcome to, to help them. And, of course, we do that just to be a good neighbor. 
Yeah. On that lead in, tell our listeners how they can uh, reach out to you and or get more information on your stations. Sure. Chickasaw Community Radio is our name, but KCNP, because that's our original station. So that's the CN stands for Chickasaw Nation. KCNP mm-hmm. is in Paul, or, K, or people, as we like to say. So Chickasaw Nation people or productions. KCNP.org is our website. KCNP.org. And that's one way to get in touch with us. But for me, myself, I don't mind putting my email out there. It's Brian, B R I A N, dot Brazier, B R A S H I E R, at Chickasaw.net. And I guess that may be in the show notes. But yeah, I don't mind answering any questions at all. That's great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today and sharing so much information about what you guys are doing. It's been very intriguing for me to learn about not only the station and the communication aspect, but also all of the technology that goes behind the scenes that sometimes people don't even think about when they come to a radio station. So thank you very much. You can learn more about Chickasaw Nation and their radio stations by visiting them online at chickasaw.net. If you have a topic for our show or would have a story to share, please contact me at michelleb at travelhub.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and follow our show wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss an episode. Connect with us here by searching Tribal Hub on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or by visiting our webpage at travelhub.com. We'll see you guys back here in a couple weeks. Have a good one.